I love suspense. Or I could just jump the gun. <laughs> ah. Hey, everybody. I'm Amy Scott. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. Kai and Kimberly are out today. So joining me is Marketplace's Samantha Fields. Welcome back, Sam. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. This is What Do You Want to Know Wednesday, where we answer listener questions. If you have a question about the economy, business, or tech, send it our way. We're at makemesmart at marketplace.org, or you can leave a voicemail at 508-U-B-SMART. All right, let's get to it. you want to hear our first question of the day? Hi, yeah. my name is Catherine Herber. I'm calling from Pompano Beach, Florida. And I have a question about the hybrid work environment. Mm-hmm. You said on the last episode that Disney is going back into the office four days a week, which is more than yeah. most offices. And I just wondered what were the advantages of all of these companies staying hybrid? Why not just choose one or the other? Thanks. I think that's a great question. Uh, And honestly, it seems to me like many companies are still trying to figure out their own answer to that question. Um, And a lot of it comes down to, I think, trying to find the right balance between what employees want and what makes sense both financially and operationally for the company. Uh, There have been a lot of surveys that have shown that a majority of people who were lucky enough to get to work from home during the pandemic, during the height of the pandemic, really liked it and that they don't want to give up that flexibility and have to go back to the office five days a week. But, you know, a lot of employers are also saying, hey, we feel like it's important to get people back together in person in the office, at least sometimes. I think, you know, part for company culture, part for just the actual work quality itself. And that, Mm. I think, seems to be driving a lot of workplaces to at least try hybrid for now and maybe see if it can kind of be that happy middle ground. Now, it can definitely be tricky for companies to make these decisions, and hybrid might not always make sense for them financially, but there can be benefits, financial benefits of going hybrid, especially if you think about it. If most of your employees are only coming in a couple of days a week and maybe not all on the same day, that could mean you don't need as much office space as a company and maybe can give some of it up, and that could be a huge way to cut back on operating costs. Um, And then, you know, there's also the huge question of attracting and retaining employees. And, you know, companies now that require everyone to come back to the office full time or, you know, almost full time like Disney, in a lot of industries, they're now competing with companies that offer a lot of flexibility, whether that's fully, you know, working remotely or some kind of looser hybrid setup. So there's a lot to consider. And I think companies are still trying to figure it out, many companies anyway. And it'll be interesting to see if this hybrid model sticks. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Kimberly and I were talking about this, I guess, when the news came out last week. It Four days yeah. seems like a lot for hybrid. It's like it that does. One day, one it doesn't day. really feel like hybrid. Right, exactly. Um, but I'm interested to see how it works out because, as I was saying to you before we got started, I, I've been sort of toying with the idea of, of going back to the office a couple times a week myself. Um you know, three years in, it turns out maybe, I know, three years. maybe God, the isolation isn't so good for us. So Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day. I'm mostly remote still. Uh, but most of the friends I've made in my adult life have come from work, have come from various jobs. Yeah. And part of me is wondering if maybe sort of I should go back to the office at least sometimes just for those connections, right? 
Yeah, even like the forced interactions, I think, can be good for those of us who might otherwise kind of keep to ourselves. Yeah. Okay, sure. next question. Oh, you, you can uh, read this one, right? I'll read this one because you're going to answer this one. So we <laughs> got right. a, a Zach from Charlotte called in to tell us about an article he read about the disappearance of starter homes. I recently read a New York Times article on the demise of the starter home as newly built homes have gotten bigger. I would love to hear your thoughts on the factors that contributed to the scarcity of starter homes and if you think we will ever return to a place where houses under 1,400 square feet are more abundant. Thank you. Hmm. Oh, I love this question. It's a great one. (laughs) That was a great story, uh, too, by Emily Badger in The Times, and I think we can have a link uh, to it for people who want to read it. Um, But I think to start with a definition of this idea of a starter home, you know, typically we think of it as a small house, 1,400 square feet or less, um, and an affordable house, a place where young couples just starting out or immigrants new to the country uh, can get a foothold in the market and build equity. And the idea was that you would trade up as you earned more and maybe had a couple kids and needed more space. Um, but this idea has really kind of vanished from our housing market. Uh, there used to be, I guess, about 70% of houses in the 1940s were this kind of size, according to the Times piece. It's just 8% now. 8%. Very few homes. Wow. Yeah, it's tiny. Um, very few homes like this are being built today. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um you know, one is after the housing market crashed uh, in, you know, the, the mid-2000s, builders really slowed down building of all kinds. And as they recovered, a lot of them tended to build larger and more sort of higher-end homes because that's where they could make more money. Uh, in this environment, it's also just really hard to build anything um, because mm-hmm. of land costs, labor costs, uh, you know, supply chain issues. And again, you know, if you have a piece of land and you can only build one house on it, you're going to build a house that's big enough to make money. Um, interestingly, though, according to the Census Bureau, the size of new homes has been shrinking recently hmm. uh, a little bit, but it's still 2,300 square feet, or the median is 2,300 square feet, um, which is more than 10% larger than two decades ago. And during the pandemic, I, actually, we saw a demand for more space. So it kind of reversed uh, a tendency to, to build smaller houses. Um, so I think to answer Zach's question, it, it's too soon to tell if starter homes are really going to make a comeback. There's certainly a lot of demand for it. Um, but also people are staying in their starter homes, those of us lucky enough to have them, longer. And I say us because I'm still in my starter home, you know, (laughs) uh, because it's just been harder to move anywhere because of all these factors. And also now we've got uh, higher interest rates, which kind of locks people who got low rates in recent years in place. They're not too tempted to move right now. And it's just kind of everybody's stuck. Um, But I think as there is kind of a movement to build more house, more housing, this yimbyism idea, yes, in my backyard, build smaller houses, build denser houses, build apartment buildings. And as that movement takes hold and cities and communities start loosening up their zoning restrictions, I really hope we're going to see a comeback of the starter home. I hope so, too. I'd like to buy one one day. Yeah. And I mean, just thinking about looking at those numbers, right, 2,300 square feet, that 
that feels huge. I mean, also I live in a city, so maybe maybe my whole <laughs> vision of this is skewed. But I think the house I grew up in was smaller than fourteen hundred square feet, and that's you know my family's forever home. So it's just kind of wild to me to realize that that's you know what eight percent of homes in this country right now. That's that seems crazy. I know, and a lot about it. A lot of it is about taste too. And people were just yeah. you know remember the McMansion. There there's been a real era of building bigger, tearing down smaller homes and building these giant spaceships. Um, a lot of it is about taste, but I do think we need we need to have a big reckoning with that. Okay, for sure. Get some of the rest of us in. <laughs> Seriously. Although yeah. you might have to leave New York City to buy a house. I, that, I don't know. That's, that's fair. <laughs> that's what I had to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, speaking of New York, uh, our next question is from Todd in Astoria. He writes, if one of the expected results of the Fed raising interest rates is increased unemployment, are states ready with their unemployment funds? That's a good one. That is a good one. And first of all, Todd is right that uh, the expectation is that as the Fed continues to raise interest rates, that unemployment will likely increase. And I would say the short answer to the question of are states ready with their unemployment funds is not really. Um, Now, Mm. this isn't necessarily a new issue. There have been significant issues with states underfunding their unemployment trust funds for years, since long before the pandemic. And the way unemployment benefits are funded is through a tax on employment. And most states have kept that tax really pretty low, too low to really keep unemployment trust funds fully funded. Um, So that's been true for a very long time. And then there's also this pattern that we tend to see after recessions, which is that once the immediate crisis of high unemployment has passed, states often actually cut back on unemployment benefits instead of strengthening them for the future. Now, that happened a Hmm. lot. Uh, in a lot of states after the Great Recession, and it's happening again now to a somewhat lesser degree. Just in the last year, at least four states have cut the number of weeks that people can collect unemployment benefits, and others are considering doing the same thing. So that would mean if you're laid off, instead of being able to collect unemployment for 26 weeks, which used to be the norm in pretty much every state before the Great Recession, in many states now you can only get it for maybe 12 weeks or 16 weeks, which is a lot less And then there's something else that states are doing, too, which is that some of them are also trying to just make it harder for people who get laid off to qualify for unemployment benefits at all or to stay on them for very long. So they will do this often either by making job search requirements a lot more intense or by requiring people to basically accept any job that they can find, whether it's in their field or not. Um, And if they don't do that, they lose unemployment benefits. Um, So all of this is very dependent on where you live. That's whether you qualify for unemployment at all, how long you can get it for, and how much you get. And the actual benefit amounts vary big time from state to state. In Mississippi, the maximum benefit is just over $200 a week. And in Massachusetts, that maximum benefit is over $800 a week. So it really matters where you live. But I would say big picture, most states have not done much, if anything, to shore up their unemployment funds since the pandemic or make it easier for people to apply for it. And, you know, during the first year, year or two of the pandemic, the federal government stepped in and really supplemented state benefits. But that was a really pretty extraordinary circumstance, and it's pretty unlikely to happen again. So ultimately, it matters a lot what your state is doing. Wow. 
This is kind of surprising. I mean, obviously, the housing market right now is still very strong, but it's not going to be forever. Um, It seems like we would learn from previous recessions, deep recessions in some cases. Right. And then you can't deal with it when you get there because you really should be dealing with it and preparing for it in the times when, you know, the economy is strong and you can pay into that fund and shore it up and kind of get ready for the the next time that a lot of people are losing their jobs and states seem to, many states seem to kind of do the opposite. Yeah. All right. So our last question today is from Mike in Buffalo, New York, and this is another email. Mike writes, gas prices have dropped and continue to do so, but why are diesel prices still stubbornly high? I am so glad Mike asked this question because I've been wondering that too. If you drive by the gas station, it's like, huh, diesel is really expensive. Um, So these prices technically have been falling along with gas, but the gap between them is much wider than it has historically been. So last summer, gas prices peaked at a little over $5 per gallon, while diesel peaked at over five eighty a gallon, according to AAA. Um, and that was after many countries placed embargoes on Russian oil, of course. Today, the national average for gas is $3.36. Uh, a gallon. For diesel, it's $4.61. So still a pretty big difference. Um, As to why diesel prices are not coming down as fast, we've had a worldwide shortage uh, because there aren't enough oil refineries to meet global demand. Several refineries actually had to shut down during the pandemic when business slowed down. And then when the economy picked back up again, uh, those closures made a big difference in the supply. Also, some mm-hmm. refineries switched altogether to producing other eco-friendly fuels. Um, and then some international maritime organization regulations now require ships to use more environmentally friendly fuels, which include diesel, uh, which hmm. is more efficient. So demand has grown. Uh, that's, you know, obviously more demand pushes up prices. Uh The good news is, according to energy experts, China is hinting at becoming a global supplier of diesel, so prices could eventually come down. Eventually. I wonder what that means. Yeah. uh, Yeah, I don't know. Um, (laughs) But I'm glad I don't drive a diesel car. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I'm wondering if that was what motivated the question. They do, yeah. So I wonder, like, how it how, how it, it comes out works out if you don't have to yeah, fill up too. as often and maybe these prices aren't as uh, uh, hurting as much i'm curious about that trade-off yeah me too but if you've got one or both kinds of cars let us know yeah <laughs> right if you've done the math <laughs> we want to know we do. all right that is it for us today on this what do you want to know wednesday kai and i will be back tomorrow with more news and some smiles And if you've got a question that's been on your mind about business, tech, the economy, call and leave us a voicemail. We're at 508-827-6278 or 508-UB-SMART. You can also send us an email. We're at makemesmart at marketplace.org. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado. 
Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. 